Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I'm one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. And I'm Ross Oldenkamp, also an evangelist. In this particular episode, we're turning our attention, first of all, to the account of the widow's son, found in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Again, that's Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said, Do not go on weeping. He came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us, and God has visited his people. This report about him spread throughout Judea and and in all the surrounding regions. Nain was a city located on the northern slope of a mountain often called Little Hermon. It was situated about 25 miles southwest of the city of Capernaum. Luke makes it clear that this event was very soon after Jesus had healed the centurion's servant in the city of Capernaum. Being 25 miles away, Nain would have been about a day's journey. As Jesus drew near to the gate of the city, two groups of people met. One group consisted of many of Jesus' disciples and a host of other people who were following him, while the other group was going in the opposite direction. They were coming out of the city and comprised a funeral procession. Being born on a pier in the funeral procession was the only son of a widow. There are few things as sad as the funeral of an individual who has been survived by a parent. This one was particularly sad since the woman had no husband to help share the burden of grief. Yeah, this story is uh, is wonderful for us because it, it really does speak to uh, the fact that Jesus cares. You know, we know that this is one of three resurrections that Jesus enacted with by his voice and uh, Jairus's daughter being one, Lazarus, and here. And anyone who ever has felt the pangs of grief at the loss of a loved one can, uh, can, can console themselves with the fact that Jesus knows that Jesus cares. We know that Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus and here uh, shows compassion for a widow who has lost her husband, now lost her son, and is desperate for, for help. And sometimes I think it's, it's easy to kind of overlook the element of compassion in so many of the Lord's miracles. And I think that's a mistake. Yes, he was proving who he was by the form of performing of the miracles. 
yet he was also a most compassionate individual. His was a compassion brought about by the realization of a very real human suffering and anguish that people feel. Jesus understood. He could feel anguish and sorrow, for he was fully man, even as he was fully God. Having said, weep not, Jesus went to the funeral pyre, touched it, and said, Young man, I say unto thee, arise. His command was simple and the method without ostentation. Yet the very simplicity of it makes this miracle incredible to contemplate. Jesus could raise the dead as easily as we might raise someone who is asleep. You know, the words, do not weep, uh, in a sense, those, those, that, that's a phrase for all of us who are Christians anyway. Paul said, we do not sorrow as others who have no hope. We have, if we're in Christ, our loved ones are in Christ, we have no reason to weep, at least as the world weeps. Because I'm so thankful for this story that teaches and reminds us of the fact that God has has taken care of our greatest need. God has made a provision not only to save our souls, but to but to save uh, but to save those who are most precious to us, our children, if they will believe on him. He has provided a way for us not to be parted in death. And I'm so thankful to him for 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 saving not just me, but my family. It's just a beautiful story of God seeing seeing us and seeing this widow here in certainly a tragic situation, having compassion on her. Um, verse 17 also stuck out to me. Um, a lot of the miracles that we've um, covered so far, a lot of them have been Jesus will say, um, don't go out and tell people. You know, And the, the, the message has been, um, kind of restricted more to an area. This one it talks about was spread throughout Judea and, and all the surrounding regions. This this story is certainly something that we know of. Um, and as as Ross said, it's absolutely we should be thankful and are very blessed to be able to know about this. This was also something that was in the in that time was spread around um, and something that hadn't been as as seen um, with Jesus' miracles up to this point. I th- I want to look just at. at one little statement that's made in verse 15. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he, that's Jesus, presented him to his mother. Maybe I'm reading something into that that's not there, but it seems to me to just speak of the tenderness and the compassion, the caring and concern of Jesus. He presented him to his mother. Just a little snapshot telling us something about the personality, the type of life that Jesus led. Anybody else? Yeah, your words bring up the picture of a a, a baby being born and, and the nurse, and the nurse taking the baby and presenting the baby to the mother. There's nothing more tender uh, uh, and affectionate. Okay, now we go to one of the more interesting events in the Gospel accounts, and that's John's doubt. 
and Jesus' comments about him. We'll just stay in Luke chapter 7. It also appears in Matthew 11, but we'll stay in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like the children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. This is one of those situations where really need to combine both accounts, Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 19, along with Luke chapter 7, 18 through 35, to really get the full picture of what transpired. So I recommend that you read Matthew 11, verses 2 through 19 as well, because after witnessing the miracles of Jesus, John's disciples informed him of what they had seen. When you do examine both accounts, you see that John sent two of his disciples to Jesus from his prison cell. It's generally believed that by the time of this event, John had already been in prison for almost six months. There are even those who hold to the idea that Don had, John had been in prison for a year when he sent messengers to Jesus. I don't know. 
exactly how long he had been incarcerated, we can't be certain. But it is certainly safe to say that he had been in prison for a considerable period of time. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that John was imprisoned in the castle of Machor. This was a strong and extremely gloomy castle located on the border of the desert to the north of the Dead Sea on the frontiers of Arabia. It was a place of wild and eerie surroundings said by Jewish legends to be haunted by goats and satyrs. This was the site of Herod's Winter Palace, which tells us something about the character of Herod. Yeah, I think with with John here, there's there's many different um, ideas on, on why he goes to, um, or why he does send the disciples to ask the question in verse 19. Um, I think one one possibility could certainly be um, the the idea of, of the what if the what if um, idea. That's something that I, uh, I know a lot of people face is um, they may know something and have the uncertainty. And what if that didn't happen? What if I was wrong? And so I think it even could be a possibility of, of reassurance for for John looking for that. Um, and just, you know, what if I was wrong? And looking for that reassurance, I think it's just one um, possibility I, th- I thought would be worth pointing out. You know, it's interesting here. When you have a man who had said, Behold the Lamb of God and someone who had, in fact, seen the Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And John knew at that point in time what he was witnessing. But he was also a man. And he was a man whose life had been one of the outdoors, rugged, kind of simple life. Now that man who used to sleep under the stars is in prison and he's in prison for some period of time how long we don't exactly know but nonetheless he asked this question some people wonder did John doubt I believe that it's part of his humanity that he did in fact wonder why he was sitting there in prison if Jesus was the son of God and was the Christ but nonetheless This is certainly a situation where Jesus responds to John's needs. Yeah, and I think that Jesus, uh, in saying, well, you just go tell John the things that you're seeing, that he certainly he certainly reassures John, and you would hope removed all doubt, and I'm sure that it did. But there is a mild... There is a little bit of a mild rebuke here in verse 23 because he says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That was primarily directed at at John uh, because he's asking these questions. And Jesus pronounces a blessing uh, on him if he will not be offended. You know, it does show John's humanity. That's all he was, was a man. He was a great man, but a man. And uh, uh, he he was, things were not uh, as he envisioned them to be in the ministry 
of Jesus. I'm sure we've all been in times like this. This is not how I saw my life playing out. Or I've always tried to put the Lord first. Why is this happening to me? That, that needs to be our refrain also at, at times like that. Blessed is the man who's not offended because of me. God has a plan, and it might involve our suffering, but he will, he will work his plan and get the glory. You know, John's reaction is a, a great deal like his, his prototype, Elijah, in that he had sunk into uh, melancholy, if we can put it that way. Uh, John was a man of strength bold and courageous, but let's not forget that he was a man, subject to weaknesses and inconsistencies. I don't know any man who lives at the highest level all of the time. And the Bible is very clear that even great men of God sometimes fail, and sometimes they fail in what appeared to be their strongest attribute. For example, Elijah failed in courage, Moses in meekness, Peter in steadfastness. Perhaps John was a case in point. He had waited for a long time locked in prison. I don't think we need to be surprised if he'd become impatient and despairing. Surely John had heard reports of the actions, the works, and the teachings being done by Jesus. They were so holy, and yet in some respects so unlike his own. It's no wonder that John was perplexed. You know, this this makes room this inner this uh this issue of unbelief with John really does create room for us before God's throne because if if God is able to look at a man like John who had doubts even though like Greg said he got to see the spirit descend as a dove and the voice from heaven this is my beloved son if, if he can ask questions of doubt, having seen those things, and, and the legacy of Scripture concerning John is not one greater you know, than John. Uh, among those born of women, not one greater. How much room and space does that create before, for us before God's throne, knowing that we've not seen those things? We believe because we've heard. We believe by faith, not having seen these things. So understand if you have questions, if you have hard times, God has room for you and he can He can reassure you just like he did John. That's one of the things about the Bible. It consistently presents men as they really were. The Bible doesn't paint idealized pictures. It shows the imperfections as well as the good. And I don't know about you, but I find it encouraging in the scriptures that we see real men, truly great men of God, men who fought the great fight and who won the race, yet they faltered from time to time. They occasionally wavered, sometimes maybe even doubted, yet came out of it triumphant. I like that in his troubled state, John sent directly to Jesus which is another biblical principle of going to the source and finding out the truth from the source. You know, um, after hearing this long list of things that Jesus has done for all of these needy people, 
I wonder if the thought didn't cross John's mind. Well, I wonder if you could add to that list, the imprisoned are freed. You know, it must be must have been a little frustrating to see all of these other people benefiting from the power of Jesus. But here I am, I'm still in prison. It's kind of interesting to, to note the kindness and the gentleness Jesus responded to the two disciples of John with. Go and show John again those things that you hear and see. Well, what was it that they had seen and heard? They saw the blind receive their sight. They saw the lame walk. They saw leopards cleansed. They heard or saw the death made to hear. They saw the dead rise. And the poor were having the gospel preached to them. It's substantially, it was a quote from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Included in Jesus' response was a word of encouragement to John. Blessed is he, whoever shall find no occasion of stumbling in me. In other words, John, don't find me a stumbling block to your faith. Remain strong and believe. I find in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 7 and in Luke chapter 7 verses 24 and 25 a warning for all who would preach God's word today. What had the people gone out to see when they went out to see John? A reed shaken with the wind? A reed did not have sufficient strength to withstand the elements. It yielded to every wind that blew. Many modern preachers are like that, by the way. They will bend in every direction of the compass to avoid any kind of controversy or conflict. Had the people gone out to see a luxuriously clad preacher when they went out to see John? What a searing condemnation of the materialism of so many today. But this is not what the people had gone out to see when they went to see John. They had gone to hear a prophet, and that is what John was. And he was not just any prophet. He was the promised prophet of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Of all of those when born to women at that time, as you pointed out, Ross, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. Let's make an important point here. At this time, the kingdom of the Lord was not yet in existence. The church had not been established. Yet as great as John was, a little one in that kingdom, when it was established, would be greater. John was never in the church, and the relationship of a little one in the church is still closer to Jesus than John had been. The point being made is that it is a marvelous blessing and a tremendous privilege to be a member of the body of Christ. The Jews of Jesus' day wanted action against Rome, the constant effort of the zealots was to seize the movement of Jesus and turn it to their violent ends. With the coming of John, the end of the law and the prophets was at hand. The Messiah was nigh. Let the Pharisees argue that the Messiah could not come unto Elijah, for John was that promised Elijah of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. If they would accept it, they could be saved. Verses 16 through 19 of Matthew's account and verses 31 through 35 of Luke's account constitute kind of an interesting use of sarcasm by Jesus. They are a comparison of the unbelieving generation 
to a group of contrary children in the marketplace who refuse to play with the other children. One group holds up to their lips imaginary pipes as though they're playing wedding songs, but the contrary group of children refuse to play along and dance. So the other changed and played mourning and weeping, acting as if they were at a funeral, but the contrary group wouldn't join in that either. No matter what they did, the other group would not accept it. It was the same with that contrary, unbelieving generation. John came neither eating nor drinking in the solemn, austere manner of the children playing at the funeral, and the Jews would not accept that. Jesus came eating and drinking, and they wouldn't accept that. They accused Jesus of being a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. However, the results of John's ministry demonstrated the wisdom of the course he had followed, and the results of Jesus' ministry were proving the wisdom of his course. The unbelieving Jews would be satisfied with no one. And I think it was the wisdom of God to expose the hypocrisy of the two sides as they responded to John and Jesus. God puts them forth as two very different individuals. They, they conducted themselves in different ways, and they found fault with both, with both sides. I mean, it sounds like uh, modern news media, doesn't it? It's like... Uh, doesn't matter what the facts are, we're going to find a way to spin it to tell our, our narrative. That's an excellent way of, of looking at it. Well, that's going to wrap up this particular presentation. We again want to express our appreciation to each and every one of you who is listening. If you have friends who might be interested in studying the life of Christ, well, have them tune in. Until the next time then, thanks for listening.